Hello and welcome to the Trial Lawyer Podcast. Very interesting episode um, this week, this month, depending on how often I'm putting these up here. Um, had a very unique opportunity. I have uh, a client last year, the name of John Davis, who was, uh, I had the privilege, the honor and the privilege to represent him. Um, in a case where he had uh, slipped on some snow and some ice outside of the uh, hotel he was staying at and broke his wrist. And uh, he was seeking compensation uh, for that. And we, you know, tried to negotiate, but ultimately had to file a case. And that case ultimately settled. Um, Well, John wanted to be able to share his experience um, as a plaintiff in that case with a wider audience. And usually this is not something that you hear because usually there's either a, you know, if the case is still going on, there is there are all kinds of incentives for the parties not to not to talk to the press or to share their story openly. Um, and oftentimes after the case is over, there's con- there are confidentiality agreements that prevent them from doing that. And sometimes the parties, even if, if there aren't, the parties just don't want to deal with it anymore. John was kind of a neat, unique experience. He was somebody that I represented for quite a while and got to be more than a client, quite a, a good friend. I really count John amongst my my great friends and uh, somebody that I care about. And he wanted to be able to share kind of what it's like um, as someone inside a personal injury case from the plaintiff's point of view, what it's like to be a plaintiff. And he, you'll hear, um, we did, I did an interview of him a while ago, and you'll hear him talk about you know, how he felt at different stages of the litigation, what things he was thinking about. And, you know, a lot of this is very individual and personal to John, and so this is not something that necessarily every person who's a plaintiff uh, in a personal injury case, everyone who's an an injured party goes through. Um, But it is a window into the experience, what it's like, um, why... Uh, you know, a lot of personal injury attorneys laugh when, when people claim that, you know, there are these frivolous lawsuits out there that people just file just for the money. Uh, because it's, you know, it's pretty difficult to be a plaintiff in a personal injury case. They're very risky. And, um, you know, if you were just trying to make money, there are a lot easier and less painful ways uh, to go about doing that. So, uh, John wanted to share his experience, wanted to be interviewed for the podcast. Um, I was, of course, uh, delighted to have the opportunity to talk with him and give him the opportunity to share his story. And so I'm going to go ahead and um, uh, let him do that. So without further ado, please enjoy my interview of John Davis. That talking to you would be a unique opportunity to explain to people, especially now that 
your case is over, it's been settled, you know, everybody's agreed to dismiss the case, so there's no way, you know, no one can take anything that you say here and use it against you in your case because the case is over. Right. And so, you know, we can probably be a little more candid than, um, you know, than we we otherwise would be because obviously, um, you know, we want to protect things that you say from being misconstrued. So um, with that kind of introduction, why don't you just tell, you know, the people a little bit who you are, how you and I came to meet, and then, you know, uh, your situation. Okay. Um, my name's John Davis. I'm originally from New York. Um, and I was staying at Extended Stay um, Suites. And the reason why I selected that for several reasons. Um, they had a cook-in, like a place where you can cook. Um, and I knew the manager there from a previous place, so she made it um, attractive by the discounts that you know were available that I didn't know about. So um, it was really a nice place, you know. And I wish, really, Gabe, that this um, scenario didn't happen because I probably would have still been residing there. I mean, my understanding is, you know, you really liked the people that worked there, right? Like the place, yes. Like staying there, yeah. The location, everything was prime. I couldn't have dreamt a better um, scenario. And all of that came to a crashing halt on April 15th, tax day. Um, but it wasn't IRS tax, it was my body that got taxed. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, Gabe, instinctual, if I had followed my instincts that day, none of this would have never happened. Cause my, Tell me about that. Well, it was snowing like cats and dogs. I looked out the window several times from early in the morning to about maybe 9.30, and it didn't seem to, the, the, the weather was consistent, the, the snow didn't reduce. So um, it was a job fair that day, and I think I had missed a day of school prior to that, so I was like, you know, I don't really like to consistently miss a lot of days in school, or anything for that matter, because it just shows um, you're not really committed. You know, that's just my mindset. So. It kept snowing. I said, you know what? You need to go. Forget about it. Let's go. It's a job fair. You have classes to go to. So as I um, proceeded to get dressed, my mind just kept saying, don't go. So I got dressed. Um, I made sure that I had, you know, I wasn't trying to be stylish that day. I just wanted to be warm and um, just comfortable. So I proceeded to go downstairs and I looked at the um, snow and I didn't think anything of it because I'm from New York. You know, snow in the wintertime, it happens all the time. And um, as I was going to my car and I was saying to my car, like, I have to sit in my car a little longer now because I got to make sure that the stuff is melted off the window um, and all of that. And the snow was like a blanket. It covered the whole lot. Now, generally, you know, when you go outside and there's perfect visibility, you can distinguish where the sidewalk and the actual um, ground is there. But that morning, it wasn't, that wasn't available to me. And I thought I was making a, a solid step, and it wasn't. It was the curb, and the snow made it an illusion where that, that was the 
the left, the level of both. And before I know it, I slipped. And you slipped on the sidewalk and then fell into the... Exactly. But immediately when I slipped, you know that noise that you make when you crack your neck? Mm -hmm. I heard that in my hand. Um, I was in a tremendous amount of pain and I panicked. It seemed like my heart. So the first thing I wanted to do immediately was collect myself and get off the ground and get back inside because I knew I was in trouble. Um, I went inside and I seen, I forget, was Bianca maybe or... Vanessa, I'm not sure which one I seen first, but I know at some point they were both behind the counter. Mm -hmm. And I had showed her my hand. I don't know if I've ever showed you that picture. Yeah, I've seen the picture and it's pretty obviously broken. In fact, I remember, I can't remember which of the witnesses we deposed, but when I showed it, when I tried to show it to her, she didn't want to see it because it was broken bones kind of freaked her out. And yeah. Your wrist was looked pretty obviously broken right. in that. So there was no dispute ever that you'd broken your wrist. Right, and it was very painful, but it, it took a psychological effect also because, as I said, my heart started racing and I wanted to just get this um, taken care of immediately. I felt just um, super vulnerable. So um, what I was very impressed with was the staff because um, I had recommended going to um, Intermountain which is on 56 and State Street. 53rd, maybe? Exactly. 53rd. Right. But that the way. Big, the big one. Exactly. Because yeah. I was familiar with that from um, shopping at Costco, because there's a Costco right there. And um, Bianca said, no, there's a hospital a couple of blocks up the block here, and which was Lone Peak. So um, I'm not sure exactly the time, but it was between maybe 10 to 11.30 in that time frame. Because I remember, because the job fair was concluded at 1 o'clock. So I still had time. Um, well, not after the wrist was broken, though. <laughs> <laughs> so um, Vanessa took me to the hospital. And in fact, she didn't just take me. She came back after the surgery. Mm -hmm. So um, we rushed to the hospital. I was in a lot of pain, and she comforted me. You know, She was saying, listen, don't worry about it. Everything's going to be all right. In fact, she had her kid with her. Mm -hmm. um, and we went over to the hospital and by 3.30 I was um, being repaired, operated on. I was, yo Gabe, I was really frightened because I didn't know the extent of the availability of my wrist that I would have. What did the doctors tell you when you came in? Um, they couldn't really tell me too much. It was just a lot of conversation on the details of what the procedure would be and a lot of... Um, reassuring that you would be all right. Did they did they take x-rays, I assume? I'm almost sure, but this is what I can remember clearly. I remember going into meeting with the surgeon. I was sitting in like a post-op room and he was like, you really banged your wrist up pretty bad. We're gonna take care of it. Like kind of a comforting slash informative mm -hmm. uh, conversation. Um, the anesthesiologist came in and he says, where's that accent from? I said, I'm from New York. And he told me he went to Yale in um, Connecticut. So we talked um, for a minute. But as anybody knows that has had a surgery, a lot of that stuff gets fuzzy when you get in the anesthesiology portion sure. of it. Because once they administer that and tell you to count backwards from 10, it seems like you never get to seven with any clarity of what happened thereafter. 
you know. Mm -hmm. um, so, like you said, I'm almost sure they did x-rays and I called a couple of people from around the country to let them know what had just happened to me. Mm -hmm. You know, family, friends. Sure. So, um, the surgery was a success. I woke up maybe about seven, eight o'clock that night, maybe even later. And Vanessa was there to retrieve me and bring me back to the um, to the facility. Um, there's something else I wanted to highlight. Take I, your time. I thought that um, my emotions was very mixed um, because now I knew for a long period of time that I wouldn't be able to work. So I wanted. I was saying to myself, how is that going to impact my future? You know, because financially now, I don't have anything coming in. Um, I'm rent is due, whatever. So I knew a couple of bishops from the church. And at that time, I was really close in contact with this bishop called Ryan Gaelic. Mm -hmm. And um, he kind of held me down. But the what happened was... I had um, tried to seek some kind of legal recourse because I felt like this is negligence here. And I even felt more, um, what's the word I'm looking for? I felt more confident in my legal recourse is the fact that Vanessa on route to the hospital mentioned to me the conversation she had with the maintenance guy about why the snow wasn't shoveled. And he mentioned to her that it was still snowing. That's why he didn't feel it was necessary to shovel the snow at that point. So I realized quickly that I had to retain some kind of legal representation. And um, she was telling me, see, this is what Vanessa had recommended. She recommended that um, to speak to the hotel people, mm -hmm. the um, corporate end. And so what, so during that time period, when, when did you contact, I know you started by contacting several different attorneys and then ultimately you called my office. When did that take place? Was that the same Almost day? immediately, no. When I came out of the hospital, it was like a day or two, maybe three. Three, three is the tops. And and you did that because you felt like, I mean, obviously you were hurt, you weren't going to be able to work, but also Vanessa told you, I mean, did she say that the, that the walks should have been shoveled? No, she didn't say that, but she agreed that he, well, yes, because um, I says, well, how could that be if the snow was still coming down? That would be even more of an incentive to shovel it. So she agreed that he was um, negligent, but at the same time, I felt like she didn't really have control of the staff. I think that that's what it was. I think. Well, <clears throat> yeah, and one other thing that we noticed that I remember, and I want to get your take on. I mean, I was surprised that they had such a large facility. I guess I shouldn't sit too far from the mic. That they had such a large facility, and they basically had three people running it. I mean, it sounded like they didn't really have, you know, anybody there at night to take care of the grounds and that the main maintenance guy, you know, his uh, he had a full schedule of things to do 
and one of them was clearing the walks, but like his office was inside where he couldn't see outside what was going on. But, you know, he took out the trash that morning, and so he obviously had to walk by and see that the snow was building up. And, you know, I kind of felt like part of the reason that they didn't take care of the property was because he were, maybe they were understaffed, and he just felt like, you know, if, if he really shoveled it as much as he should, he wouldn't have time to do the other things that he needed to do. I mean, did you see any indication of that? <laughs> you know, this is how I would want to answer that. Yeah. I really believe that it was just a... Uh, um, she didn't have full control of the staff. Mm-hmm. And I felt like, um, I don't know if three people or four people um, was always, that was their um, complete staffing for that facility. But I just felt like if it was one person and the manager said to shovel the snow, you shovel the snow. Um, there could have been things to, to prevent that. They could have put out signs. They could have put out salt. They could have even shoveled one area and put out a sign um, directing people only to use that area of the facility. So I don't know if I answered your question. No, that's. I mean, I think that's. I think that's accurate. I mean, we. You know, when we are pursuing this from a legal standpoint, we kind of look at. Well, all right, we've got somebody that's been injured, and it's not his fault. And so, you know, we kind of look at, well, you know, where, how, who made a mistake, you know, because mistakes happen. Um, That wasn't a mistake though, Gabe. I feel like that that was negligence because I could never wrap my head around, even as as I'm speaking to you now, someone saying that I'm not going to shovel the snow because it's still snowing. Well, and that's the interesting thing. Like when I say a, a mistake... Um, you know that's what a neg- that's what negligence is. Okay, ne- negligence is is when somebody does something that falls below the standard of what a reasonable person would do, and that can be a mistake. I mean, a lot of times people don't realize that. Um, you know, even as we get into the litigation process, that you know mistakes happen, and just because somebody didn't do something intentionally or didn't do something really bad. You know, if they failed to take the care that a, a reasonable person would take, and that's in those circumstances, you know, even if it was an accident, um, you know, that's negligence. And our system of justice uh, says that the person who's responsible, or the company who's responsible in this case, should be the ones uh, to pay. Right. Yeah. Now, so after your. Uh, let's <clears throat> skip ahead a little bit until after you and I have talked. Um, we, you know, we, I recall we talked a little bit about trying to see if it was possible to resolve, um, you know, this sooner rather than later. Tell me a little bit about that. Briefly, before I answer that question, I want to just say when sure. my concerns really got heightened, yeah, um, when she had mentioned to me that. Well, she didn't mention, she suggested that I speak to a corporate person that she had gave all of the information to. And she said that out of this conversation would possibly come 
of rent stay free period for me mm-hmm. in exchange for not suing the corporation. Mm-hmm. And I told her that I wasn't comfortable with that for several reasons because I didn't know the damages long term to my wrist and I didn't know what type of funds or um, physical therapy that I would have to have that, that would be available to me. And if I had made a deal like that with them that I had pri- primarily just threw all of use of this hand away. I didn't know that, but I mean, it would have been limited what kind of uh, medical treatment that I could have received. And I had also made like a footnote on that conversation nicely because of all of the stuff that she's done for me from taking me to the hospital, for me following her over there as the manager. I said, Vanessa, you know, I really appreciate everything you've done for me, but at this point, I feel it's in my best interest to seek legal counsel. Mm-hmm. And because you and I are friends, I don't think it's in my best interest to discuss anything further with you and I. And that's when um, my time was numbered and they accelerated. Um, um, they inflamed my uh, monthly or my weekly every week as a ploy and it worked to get me out of there. They, when you say they inflamed it as a ploy, they increased your rent. Yes, drastically. And, and from your perspective, at least, that was an attempt to kind of get you out of the... No, I wouldn't. See, I don't want to be nice about this. It was definitely, <laughs> it was definitely because prior to that, she yeah. was doing everything that she could to reduce my rent. Mm-hmm. So all of a sudden, but at the same time, I know that those pressures were brought on from her superiors. Sure. I don't think that there was nothing that she was doing, but she was just trying to save her job and follow their instructions. Well, at that point, so your rent got raised and basically you became homeless. Yes. All right. And is that the point where you talk to me about um, trying to get the case resolved as soon as possible? Well, I spoke to you maybe about a couple of weeks before I became homeless. And I was elated to have you as my representative because I wasn't able to get anybody to represent me. I mean, people made me feel hopeless. You know, I felt on top of this injury now that... I may not even get anything because the compensation is basically about trying to get more physical therapy. If I need to be in a, a situation where I could go have to go to the hospital, there's something there available for me where I could facilitate that. That's primarily what that was about. Um, but when I spoke with you, you told me that there was more than a good chance of being victorious in this case. And I was just relieved. So those um, words of encouragement, it didn't help, but it, it made sleeping in the car more, there was an end to, to the madness. You know, I felt, well, you know what, if I have to go through this, at least when. But, but there was a time when we were trying, to, when we, we saw it, I mean, you know, I know it's kind of a painful period, but I remember there was a period of time where we thought, okay, if we can arrange something where you can get some money quickly so you don't have to sleep in your car, you don't have to be homeless, you know, while we, you know, you and I discussed and we thought, well, this case is worth dramatically more than this, we decided to approach the corporate representatives with a low, kind of a low ball offer that would say, okay, 
surely they'll be willing to resolve this for, you know, for this. this I remember offer. the price. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And um, <clears throat> we were, I, I, I personally was really surprised when I talked to them that they weren't willing to, I mean, it was, I don't want to say the number, but it was less than half the amount that we wound up uh, settling for. And, you know, the response that we got from the corporate, um, you know, the administrator, I think it was a, an insurance administrator for the company was basically no way. Right. Yeah, they, were, they had no interest in resolving your case for what, you know, was... I'm, I mean, it was a number that was low enough that I'm sure they spent more than that on their attorneys ultimately fighting the case. Right. So, you know, it, it wasn't that you were unreasonable. In fact, you were trying to be reasonable right from the get-go um, and just, you know, couldn't get them to respond. You know, and partially the reason why I wanted to make that um work with that offer because I didn't want to relive this scenario again. You know, it feels like when I do an interview, when we had the depositions, it was almost like I fell in the snow every time uh, once again when we went through that because I had to relive and conjure up those images of, of that. And like you had mentioned, I was very disappointed and surprised that um, they didn't... Um, want to resolve at that point and you know I got to be honest with you Gabe at a certain point I really started believing the hype feeling like you know what I just broke my wrist and you know I might have to just swallow it and walk away empty-handed with mm -hmm. nothing um and there you were you know and we discussed uh, a lot of different scenarios and um you constantly reassured me that we had this yeah well and I and I think that you know that's this is a good place to kind of remind people that, you know, I mean, there there's a persistent narrative that's put out there, I think, in my jaded opinion, by, you know, the insurance companies and by people that, you know, that, that don't want to stand up to their obligations, that there are people out there who you know, kind of fall on purpose and get hurt and they, they think that's going to be their big payday. Uh, what would be your response to that? Hey, listen, I'm in my 50s. When, and, you know, I'm 57 now. When that happened, I was like 55. Um, I need all of my limbs, I need everything to work at full strength and capacity. Um, I can make money. I'm articulate. I'm intelligent. Um, I'm educated. Um, I would never... Um, disrespect myself, my family, because um, I have just too much respect for myself and I know I, I'm able to complete or do anything that I want to do. So for me as a person to go around to damaging and injuring myself, I was highly insulted that someone would even think that. Yeah, and I, I, I've always, every time I've heard that, I've always thought, gosh, there are so much easier and less painful ways to make money I don't know why anybody would ever think somebody's making it up um, when they go through this incredibly arduous process. I mean, you mentioned, you know, this took two years to get resolved to what is a fairly straightforward uh, case. Um, you know, that just seems unrealistic. So the case proceeded forward. Um, you were deposed. What, what was your experience with that? Hey, Gabe, you know, 
I'm a guy that I'm very um, comfortable and I know who I am. Um, that was one of the most humiliating experiences I've ever had. And I, was, I felt handcuffed because, I mean, this was a part of the process of our great legal system that I had to go through. But the other side, um, at every opportunity that they got, they tried to um, discredit, um, assassinate my character, and at some points thoroughly disrespect me. Mm -hmm. And um, again, you know, since we're talking, I gotta be honest, you know, we're in Utah, black people are like 1% of the population. And I really thought that if this guy had an opportunity to showcase me on trial, that he could probably poison the, the jury pool enough to convince them of those antics that you just mentioned. So um, I'm not really feeling good at this point. I'm not feeling good about myself because um, I came into the, to the deposition um, willing to... You're talking about at the deposition. I'm talking about at the deposition. I came yeah. in the deposition willing and freely offering all of the facts and details of that day. And this guy's coming across with all of this other um, mud on the wall and let's see what sticks kind of um, approach. And I, when I left that day, I don't even know if I wanted to continue with this. Yeah. You know, I was just that much humiliated. And I've mentioned that to you several times. Well, and I remember that the lawyer on the other side made a joke at your expense as you were leaving. You remember he said something like, well, don't slip. Right. Don't, yeah. Whatever. I mean. And this wasn't even the, the, the attorney for the extended state. This was the attorney for the snowplow people. Yeah. So at this point now, I'm thinking nobody's taking my injury serious. And. To me, it's, you know, I may not seem like I take things personal or they don't hurt, but Gabe, man, and I don't even know, you're probably saying, wow, I didn't know that. You just first time you're disclosing this to me, but I was devastated that day. Mm -hmm. um, well, no, I could tell. I mean, being deposed, you know, I have never been deposed myself, uh, fortunately, but, you know, being deposed is not a fun experience well absolutely even saying that but if just the line of questioning and the, the 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 level of sensitivity was elevated it wouldn't have been that much of a terrible experience but just the way this guy put me out there i just felt disrespected yeah. humiliated and my character you know was assassinated there's a line that i remember they said um once somebody assassinates your character and you're vindicated which window do you go back to get your character back from yeah and there's no such window so um i just felt really bad and i felt like this might could go on for years because mm -hmm. i really believe if we went to trial and we were victorious that he was going to appeal that yeah well and ultimately we were able to get a good result for you something that that you were happy with um, talk talk a little bit about the settlement process i mean uh, you know, we kind of got an offer at mediation that we thought was a little ridiculous. And then, um, you know, we were able to get uh, something better kind of out of the blue. You know, Gabe, I, I put it to you like this. And this is only my experience. Sure. Extended stage reputation to me will always be re reduced to like pigs in the mud. Mm -hmm. Because I felt like they had a real opportunity here to put themselves in a place, not only with me, but just 
throughout their financial empire to just do what was right. You know, um, I don't think that we were unreasonable for what we were asking for. In fact, I think that we bend over so much backwards that they should have thrown some chiropractors um, session for the in the settlement because yeah. we really bent over backwards to accommodate, and mm-hmm. that was because I just wanted to get this thing over with. You know, um, it, it wasn't fun from the fall to the to the conclusion. Um, I just didn't know what was on their mind, but I thought that they thought the ace in the hole was that they could muddy and poison the jewelry pool enough to compromise anything that we would have thrown at them to reduce the settlement or to get it totally thrown out. That's mm-hmm. the, the course that I thought that we were going to go on. Um, because the, the, the settlement offers that we agreed to or we presented them with, they weren't budging. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, originally, you know, it was interesting because originally they presented us with one offer at a mediation and... And, um, and then, uh, you know, it took, it took actually setting a trial date with the judge before, you know, I think, and obviously I'm just guessing here, but I'm thinking they reevaluated the case and their position and they came back with an offer that was, you know, um, quite a bit, uh, higher and it was much closer to what we'd been asking for all along. But it still wasn't what we were asking for. It wasn't what we were asking for. And they say settlement, you know, in litigation, it, you know it's a good settlement if both sides come away feeling like, one side came comes away feeling like they accepted too little and the other side comes away saying they <laughs> paid too much. Uh, but, you know, I think that um, it, it's, a, it's an arduous process and it's a difficult process and you know, frankly, I'm glad that we were able to reach a solution that if we're not happy with, we can at least live with and allows you the opportunity to move on with your life. And I was very, I felt very privileged to be able to help you do that. Hey, Gabe, I just want to say this, though. You know, um, in any scenario when we feel vulnerable or afraid, we always there's always somebody there that gives us some kind of foundation to walk on where we feel like, you know what, this is going to be all right. And I felt like with your accessibility, um, you know, like I could call you or text you on your phone and you would get right back with me. Mm -hmm. Or when I would speak with you, those are the moments inside of that that I felt that allowed me to be able to make it through with, with some, some type of sanity. Um, if I didn't have you as an attorney on any end of the case, um, I don't know. And I'm not just saying this because I'm in your presence. I really don't know because this, the way this guy treated me in the deposition, man, I mean, I can't describe to you in words the way I felt. And it really created a, a feeling of hopelessness because I almost bought into like this dude is getting ready to crush us. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, it's about counsel I think when you're going through things like this if you have counsel that not that you believe in them but they believe in you Yeah. and that's what kept me going you know I would get a call from you I would get an update from you I would get a call on a Sunday from you mm-hmm. so I was like I think we're going to be alright 
But I think that I knew. I knew we were all right when you did that mock black and white thing. Oh, yeah. Well, we, one of the things that we tested just for the listeners is we do, um, you know, because obviously we want to know what a, a jury's going to think. Um, we, we did a mock jury uh, scenario, and interestingly enough, um, because we're in Utah and we have a population that doesn't have a lot of experience with African Americans, um, we did a procedure where we had the whole group together and we presented them with kind of a neutral version of the facts and then that left out the fact that John is African American and then we divided them up to go into separate rooms and deliberate and we had uh, videos there and um, in one of the rooms we had a picture of John and another one we had a picture of a different guy whose name was also John Davis but happened, happened to be white and just seeing the differences in the way they responded in the different rooms without having any actual discussion about it from us just picking up on it their own subconsciously um, we learned a lot about <laughs> what needed to be presented and how you know how people were going to deal with it and you know we had planned we actually talked with the judge about this at a pretrial conference about judge we need to find a way to screen jurors for their attitudes about african americans and their experience because we found that this is a you know a, a major issue and i think you know besides the fact that that gave us a lot of insights that proved helpful i think opposing counsel hearing that we had researched that issue, I think that had a significant impact because it was shortly after that after that hearing and when trial was set that we ultimately got the call saying, hey, I've been directed to offer you guys you know, the amount we ultimately settled for. So, yeah, I, I think that was incredibly useful. Well, I thought, that's why I told you, it's not like I never lost confidence, but I got re-energized because I thought that that was absolutely brilliant on your part well, thank to you. even conceptualize that kind of um, strategy so we could have some kind of foresight <coughs> or insight yeah. and even hindsight yeah. on um, what was before us. And um, to be honest with you, Gabe, I didn't care if we had to go a couple of years after that <coughs> because I felt like I was already confident in this dude, but this dude is going like Jordan on us. You know, he's going straight to the hole. And now we'll just take a quick break for a word from our sponsor. The law offices of Gabriel K. White provides extraordinary service for a reasonable fee. Other personal injury law firms will take a third of your recovery, even if they don't do any work to settle your case. The law offices of Gabriel K. White doesn't operate that way. Our fees depend on our risk, which means that we charge you less if your case settles sooner. Any new injured clients will only have to pay a 25% fee if we settle or resolve the case without filing a complaint or other paperwork with a court, arbitration, or other panel. Compared with what other personal injury law firms charge, that's a savings of over $8,300 on a $100,000 case. Why pay more? If you have been injured in an accident, call the law offices of Gabriel K. White at 801-810-9491.
But I got to still tell you, man, I remained fearful because at trial, I didn't know what to expect. And as I had mentioned to you, um, and this is for anybody, I would say, no one wants to be humiliated privately or publicly. Mm-hmm. Um, and I really feared um, the jury. Mm-hmm. I didn't have any doubt with my counsel. And I knew what the other side um, was capable of doing. So um, I felt like they would go to no end and um, assassinate my character on every level. So um, when you had told me the responses and all of that, um, I was like, if we just got to go years, it got to go years. Uh, yeah. We're going to ride now. Yeah. Um, and I got a call from you in the middle of the day. Mm-hmm. Low voice, all of that. I was like, wow, what's going on? And I was surprised to hear that because we had discussed throughout that it would be a possibility that they may make an offer. But I think the last time you had said that, I says, Gabe, I don't believe that that's true. I think that we're going to trial now because we had already had the date set for um, April. I want to just mention this, though, and this has nothing to do with nothing, but... I'm a real, I wouldn't say superstitious type of guy, but I believe in unnatural and those kind of events. Mm-hmm. The trial date mm-hmm. was the day that my mother died. No, uh-huh. not the day that she died, the day that I buried her. Uh-huh. And I felt that it was some kind of significance with that date and her paranormal or supernatural. Um, so I felt like that date, it... it that meant something. Like my yeah. mother would be really there to help me out. I mean, that's either here or there. But no, that's what yeah. I felt by that date. It was April seventeenth, and that's the day that I met, I buried her. Or April eighteenth. Yeah. One of those dates. But I knew. I think that's right. Yeah, I was like, okay. Yeah. Well, and I think you know we learned a lot of important things from that focus group, and I definitely think that it helped us. And you know, it was something that you know going forward i'm definitely going to be doing on just about every case i do that's going to trial because you know you learn a lot of things what made you um want to travel that route well you know we had been studying i'm always studying to try and improve my skills and i had been reading some books about focus groups and you know they pointed out that attorneys you know, we spend a lot of time working with other attorneys and we spend a lot of time in law school working with other law school and you start to lose touch. With the client base. Well, not so much with the client base because you deal with the clients, but with the general public. And a lot of times jurors will hear something that you say and you mean one thing, but they understand something completely different. Sure. And so the focus group is a way... They're not so great at predicting necessarily who's going to win or lose or what the amount of the judgment's going to be, but it's a way of predicting what the jurors think is important and what factors influence their thinking and what phrases. Because, you know, we've got a videotape of them discussing things and, you know, they're going down the list of stuff they've got to find and they're thinking, well, what did you think about the evidence of this? Well, you know, when they said this, I thought that was particularly powerful. Or, you know, when he mentioned this area, I wanted to know... What was up with that? What did that mean or whatever. And so it helped us as we were preparing for trial because we always look at all of these cases. I mean, I won't take a case that I'm not... Confident. Confident. Well, that I'm not prepared to try. I mean, I don't take cases 
just on the assumption that I'm going to settle them. Every, every case I take, I think, before I take it, I think, is this a case that I'm comfortable standing up in front of 8 to 12 jurors, depending on where we're at, um, and, and asking them uh, to give us a verdict. Right. And so, you know, we were preparing for trial there, and, you know, truth be told, I thought we were probably going to wind up trying the case too. And so getting those kind of insights really helps because then I can sit down and say, John, when you're up there testifying, I know you're going to mention, you know, this aspect of your pain or how it limited you in doing this. But our focus group tells us that it's important that we explain a little more about, you know, how that limited your ability to carry out your daily life. They wanted to know that or how this was different from the normal joint pain that people experience when they get older. Things like that that otherwise would not have occurred to us. And so we learned a lot from that process. That was absolutely brilliant. Because I've never heard of that before. Yeah. You know, I think I might have seen something like that on Law and Order or something like that, but I've never um, heard or especially been the the subject of um, something like that. And, you know, Gabe, you can't legislate morality. you know, especially with corporations, because these guys are like Robin Hoods. But again, like I said, it was a really um, cozy place for me. Um, it was affordable. I really liked the girls there. Um, I can't speak for them, but I think they felt the same about me at a certain yeah, point. Yeah, no, and, I, and I got the sense in the depositions that they liked you too. I mean, they, you know, this is again just my opinion, but I felt like they were torn on the one hand whenever they could, they'd say nice things about you in the depositions, but on the other hand, they knew that their corporate masters, you know, didn't want to fairly compensate you for uh, your, the injuries you suffered as a result of their negligence. So, you know, on the one hand, they'd say stuff like, well, we don't think it was particularly slippery, you know, and then we'd say, well, did you go out and check and see? Well, no. Did you did you take any photos of the area where he fell? Well, not that day. Did you you know Did you have any information about how slippery or what? Well, no, not really. I mean, things like that. And then we'd ask, well, what did you think of John? Oh, he was a really hard worker. He was always either working or he was trying to find work, you know. And then when we did talked about you going to a job fair that day, you know, obviously that fit right in with you know what we were going to be telling the jury. So. Um, you know, I think this was a situation where everybody in the room knew what happened and they knew what was right, but they had their orders and, you know, their orders were different. So, you know, Gabe, though, um, surmising from what you were just saying, nobody really won in this case. My wrist is still not the same as it was before. Um, their reputation is damaged to a certain extent. I believe um, they lost money um, with the settlement. <clears throat> um, you can't legislate morality, and this is not a perfect world. You know, I'm well aware of that. But I just wish that they had treated me with the respect that I treated them with when they needed their money every week when I told them that I would pay. And I think, and I think that is the gist of kind of what I would like people to come away from this discussion is that, you know, the tort system, the legal system, is not about 
windfalls. It's not about paydays. It's not about somebody coming away, you know, winning everything. It's about, it's, and it's supposed to be about justice. And it's supposed to be about getting people compensation when they've been hurt, you know. And ultimately, you've got on the other side, you've got a party, but, you know, people don't understand because we're not allowed to tell them in court that what you really got is an insurance company. And it's somebody that has been accepting premiums from their insured for years by promising to defend them and pay out if they have an accident. I mean, that's why people get insurance is because, because mistakes are made. Right, right. And, you know, everybody, everybody's trying to do the right thing, but insurance companies don't get to be multi-billion dollar things by writing a lot of checks. So, you know, I, I would say that the legal system is not fair, but it's the fairest system that we've been able to come up with so, so far. So far, at this point, yes. Yeah. And John, I really appreciate your willingness to share your story with the, the podcast listeners. Thank you very much. And it has been an honor and a pleasure to represent you. And, and thank you very, very much. Indeed. It was my pleasure. Thanks, John. As always, thank you all for listening. This is the Trial Lawyer Podcast. This has been our interview of John Davis. Um, I was very grateful to John for his willingness to share his experience. And we hope you'll uh, listen in the future to future episodes of the Trial Lawyer Podcast. Thank you.